Uh, welcome to the 34th podcast. Today, our guest was born in Killeen, Texas. As the son of a naval officer, he earned his title of military brat, moving across various states in the U.S. during his youth before finally moving to Japan and graduating from Kinnick in 2004. After high school, he spent a couple of years traveling in Asia and performing music before joining the military in 2007. He served on the ballistic missile submarine USS Nevada as a nuclear reactor operator. After the Navy, he went on to work as an engineer technician for Intel in Phoenix, Arizona, repairing plasma, etching equipment from semiconductor manufacturing process. While in Arizona, he fell prey to one of the dreaded American plagues of gun violence, receiving a bullet to the chest. After recovery, he took a couple of years away from his career and traveled to the major metropolitan areas, exploring the political, economical, mental, and cultural issues surrounding America. He then turned his focus back to his career, moving to Austin, Texas, becoming an equipment engineer for Cypress Semiconductor. In Austin, he is researching the importance of the electrical quality and coherence of food and water and its effect on mental and physical health. He also mentors men and youth on self-awareness on how to avoid the cultural pitfalls of America that will prohibit their version of success in the future. Via these, he attempts to start a nonprofit that tackles some of what he observes as the base issues plaguing America. Welcome to the podcast, Brendan. Oh, thank you, Nick. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's so good to hear from you. I've been seeing your podcast open. I'm excited I'm finally on here, so I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, for, first guest from the base, uh, one of the bases, right? In the Technically, I know you guys aren't Tokyo, but in, you know, for, in the Kanto Plains areas, just to sort of reiterate, the, the schools that sort of you know, were involved in the Kanto Plain athletics were you guys, Kinnick? We also, uh, Yokota, again, not close, but Yokota was often involved. And um, Zama as well, right? They were, they're not close, but again, I felt like they were part of sort of our Kanto Plains you know, family. Yeah, we go back a far uh, ways. I think about 20 years ago, um, I think you beat me quite a few times in track and field. And, uh, um, I think so. Uh, I, I might have got lucky a couple times. <laughs> so I do have this vivid me- uh, memory of you uh, as a track and field athlete as well as an American football athlete. Uh, fortunately, I wasn't on the, the losing side uh, for American football because uh, the joke's on you. I didn't even play American football. <laughs> so um, <laughs> Makes that one easy. And um, today, uh, there's quite a few things to touch upon, right? Your experience traveling around playing music, your you know, mentorship programs in Austin, as well as your experience in the Navy. But I think we'll take this one chronologically. Your experience at Kinnick, um, you move around in the United States, you know, as quote unquote, the military brat, people are familiar with usually in the international scene. You end up at Kinnick. Um, when did you start at Kinnick and uh, when did you finish? So I showed up at Kinnick uh, 2001. It was my sophomore year. It, it was um, a surprise, you know, um, for my parents at least, telling them telling me I was moving overseas. And um, showing up was to Japan and, and realizing I was actually going to be going to school there was at that time, was, it was surreal. You know, I showed up. I think I played my first basketball game within two days of me showing up that weekend. <laughs> the coach had, had already been told that me, me and my brother were showing up there. And uh, I remember we, we, we jumped into that game and I couldn't even breathe during the game because um, the, just the air quality was, was different in, in, uh, in Yokosuka. 
um, just because of uh, just elevation changes from where I was in a different part of the country. So here, me and my brother were, were huffing up and trying to get to this game. And we were miserable that game. <laughs> Almost felt like we weren't going to get picked up for the team just because of how horrible we did. <laughs> um, it kind of set our, our tone there. Um, Kenick is a, a department of defense school, as you said, um, part of the big three, as you said, uh, Kenick being uh, affiliated with the Navy, Sama being affiliated with the Army, and Yokota being affiliated with the Air Force. So we were right there in uh, Yokosuka. Uh, I think I graduated from maybe uh, 350 people um, on the deck of the, the Kitty Hawk. Uh, it was, uh, again, another surreal experience. So, uh, And growing up there, I guess because you were on the military base, how was your experience like in comparison to other international schools? Because you guys were technically an American property, although you were in Japan. So what was that sort of juxtaposition of like being in America, but not really? I almost felt like it gave you a little, little cave, like a home to go to, right? So um, we, we, I was still in another country, but I still had my American culture system uh, grounded with, within the fabric there. So I think it helped let me, my mother, I guess, uh, calm her worries. Or let me explore a little bit. You know, I wasn't in America with a lot of the problems that come with being here as a child. Um, and she trusted Japan. So I think, um, you know, there would be weekends I would just disappear. I would tell my mom I would be gone for the weekend. I would grab a train ticket. I'd point to somewhere on a map. And that's, that's where I was going that day. So it was this back and forth dynamic that I got to have. That it was like me jumping into a different country every day and still going back home to America at night. It's, it's a weird dynamic, but um, it allowed me to really explore Japan from a, a different perspective, I guess. <laughs> And you mentioned the Dodds, the, the big three. I'm curious with the Dodd schools, do you guys have sort of a network of alums um, once you graduate? And, you know, do people return to the military quite often like, like you did? Uh, people actually tend to join the, the military quite often. And people um, tend to get comfortable living around the, the cities that military bases come from. Just the cities have their own different culture and way, way of life, I guess, if you want to put it that way. So you tend to get comfortable with... Um, with that. So with just how small tight of a community we are, you also end up running into a lot of people. Like I've personally run into, um, just from my own military travels, into a lot of friends that I had from high school that, you know, I, I didn't know they would be on the base. I'd be walking to go to Burger King and they'd be sitting there and I'm like, hey, I haven't seen you since high school. So <laughs> you'd be, it's one of those, uh, it's a small world things. It, it proves itself true. So. Upon graduation, you decide to travel Asia playing music. We've never spoken about this, so I'm actually really curious what exactly uh, <laughs> you mean by that. It, it sounds like something out of a movie. But uh, what were you doing for? <laughs> well, it, I think it surprises people because I was uh, I was known as as the athlete, and and while I was at Kinnick, um, you know, I did play. I played for football, played uh, for ran track, was with you running track and uh, and basketball. I made the decision I was going to go to to college, Southern Methodist University, and try to walk on the track team there. Uh, but 2004, when I decided to attend there, was the year that they cut their team uh, because of Title IX. That's the year their football team came back from the death penalty. So mm. um, I came back to Japan after that, and I decided that um, you know I did I didn't want to go to college at that time. I just I didn't want to waste my parents' money. I knew I wasn't <laughs> going to really put the focus into it. Actually, more interested in music. Um, music is what um, was really what what my passion in high school was. <laughs> I was in show choir as well, um, and we would still be part of the the console playing association uh, uh, choirs there. So you know I was part of the um, the uh, the choir where they get um well it's, it's just like the athletics there. But they, they, they gather chairs from, from all the different schools. You come together and, you know, 
you're able to, they do the same thing for band and orchestra. Um, but it's just another networking thing for different meeting people from other schools. So that's why I met so many, so many of y'all from uh, schools like ASIJ and <laughs> that were around the console planes there. So after high school, I decided that I wanted to start uh, pursuing my music, I guess. Um, well, after uh, Southern Methodist, at least, I uh, got together with a group of guys, um, one who's actually uh, just came out with an album last year. Um, mm -hmm. Name is Buddha Monk. Y'all should go check out his album. Um, Derek, or at least in the Yokosuka. And uh, another one, he, he travels in California. He's a rapper. <laughs> but uh, we started a little label there in Japan and we toured. Um, we did a lot of, lot of little amateur shows there in uh, Tokyo. We went out, uh, we traveled a lot to London. We went over to Korea. We, uh, we traveled to Seoul. We performed there. And uh, it's a lot of, lot of R&B, a lot of the pop things you see nowadays. But uh, I guess my uh, contribution to that was just a lot of the production. I was always interested in, in writing music. And I thought at that time it was going to be a, a, a film score composer. <laughs> so um, that's what we are. Yeah, that's, that's what that was happening at that time in my life. Wow. So that was a full three years of your life. And then 2007 comes. You decide to join the military. Was that decision hmm. easy to make? At that point, were you sort of knowing, knowing that you're done with music and that you want to sort of start a new chapter? Well, I, I, I still wasn't ready, quite ready to, to go to college. Um, I, I, I did want to go to school, and so I actually had a, an area of focus that I wanted to study on. But I knew I could just be traveling around Japan at the time, <laughs> um, simply because I knew that the, uh, there was an opportunity to be there for leadership um, potential in, in business, I, I would say. Um, I think there's a trade-off with being in, in Japan and being, in, Af or being in, um, in America, at least. In Japan, I feel like, you know, as I was respected a lot more in Japan as a, uh, you know, as a person, at least being as, as an African-American in Japan. I was able to walk more around uh, with people and, um, and connect one-on-one, -on -one, and people really saw me as people, but there was, there was less opportunity there. Uh, I came back to America, and I feel like maybe I traded just a little bit of that respect just with the inherent um, culture that we have here, but there were just there was more opportunity here for me, and I knew the best way to harness that opportunity was just to go ahead and join the military, get the the training and the uh, the experience that it would give me, um, and then I could go back to my music if I wanted to, or a career would be waiting for me on the other side of that. So, I decided to come back to America, uh, moved back here to uh, to Texas, spent time with family for about six months, did some music here as well, <laughs> and then I. Uh, Went on the military from there. Interesting. And you touched upon an interesting concept of, you know, of race, right? And it's an ongoing concept throughout this podcast, right? Just in the last few episodes, we've had a Swiss guy, we've had a Filipino guy, had a white guy, and like the various races, various, you know, experiences. And you were just saying that in Japan, you felt like there was more respect. Do you mind elaborating a bit more on that point? Well, on, on an individual level, I felt like in Japan, I, there wasn't an inherent um, cultural past that was tied to my interactions with people. So my, my interaction with the person is what dictated my character. When they're running, they're, I, I knew when I walked up to a Japanese person, especially since I, I spoke the language, there, there would be a level of, of uh, more mutual res respect. Um, and I didn't have to overcome any barriers or any inherent barriers just from any cultural um, stereotypes. Um, in America, Although it individually, what, I, what I've seen are, are, are that people are, are really heartfelt um, in their interactions with people. But just because of the cultural biases that are already there, there tend to be interactions sometimes where people aren't aware of the mass that, that some people uh, or some cultures have to put up sometimes. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, 
but it's it's dual natured with me um just because you know um you see you see being in japan you see um at different aspects of it. in japan i'm able to in japan if i'm learning the japanese culture and i go act, interact with a japanese person you're told that you're just you know you're acting uh, you're you know you're trying to learn the japanese culture but you come to america and you try to learn American culture, and then you get the other side of of the racial spectrum, where you're told you're being you're acting white now. And it's like, wait a minute, I'm just <laughs> I'm learning American culture. This is this is America. So there tends to be a there tends to be a race or race aspect of it on, on both sides of it. And I think uh, especially there's um, some aspects that black males don't get to talk about <laughs> of it. Um, but um, yeah, it's definitely there. And uh, being in Japan just gave me a, a I guess, a more nuanced view of interacting in America itself, I guess. (laughs) That's incredibly intriguing, that idea of, you know, obviously right now, as far as during our lifetime, I feel like, um, at least with the older folks, they say, you know, sort of this topic of race and, you know, police brutality has never been in the forefront. I mean, the closest comparison would be Rodney King, you know, maybe in 94, but obviously we were too young to remember that. Mm. Or, Or we might remember it, but barely, right? We were like barely 10 years old. When it comes to being an African American in this time, like what would you say? Because you have this unique lens, right, of like living abroad and then living in the States. Do you feel like when you came to the US, like back to the US, was there a reverse culture shock? Was there like sort of this thing that maybe you, you weren't aware of that you became aware of because you were abroad? Oh, oh, definitely. Um, it's, it's palpable when you come back to the U.S. I used to say when I, when I, when I first joined the Navy that I used the exact word, actually, it was a culture shock coming back to America. Um, being in Japan, their culture there is a lot more collective. Uh, people take care of each other. You don't see trash on the street. People aren't yelling. People aren't angry at each other. Uh, they tend to help each other out. Uh, kids, you know, they, they go to elementary school by themselves, they're actually encouraged to do that. <laughs> there's a lot of things, a lot of freedom of movement that you wouldn't see in America. So when you when you land in America, it's almost, especially as, you know, again, being, um, being an African-American male, you, it's almost palpable just the cultural biases that are, that, that are there. Um, they're, not, they're not purposely wielded by people. Uh, and again, I think that's just, there's just certain um, threads that are weaving in the fabric of cultures that are hard to untangle, even if people aren't using them themselves um, that, that weigh on you. Um, and I didn't realize racism actually existed until I moved to America, <laughs> to be honest, because it, it, it felt different in Japan. In Japan, again, you have that respect. I saw worse things in Japan, like I, being, you know, going around at, at night sometimes in Japan, you'd see bars that literally had signs on it that said no black people allowed, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But it didn't come with the same element of American history that you would think of. So when mm-hmm. you see that in America, it comes with, um, just because of the history that there, it comes with a different quality. That quality is, is tangible. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I can tell you, when I, when, even when I go back to Japan, I can, I can feel it lift. It's not even there. It's, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think we could maybe both agree on the idea that sometimes people sort of look at, you know, criticism towards Japan or the U.S. Because I'm basically... I had a similar experience to you in regards to the reverse culture shock. I left Japan for a while, like four years. Mm. I came back and then there were all these elements of Japanese culture. People had told me it were negative, but I guess they never quite 
went into my head. And then as an adult, I was there in my 20s, you know, just stuff like the rampant sexism at work and stuff. Uh, And I became more aware of that. But one thing I like to make clear to people is that like my criticism comes from a place of like love, you know, it comes from a place that I want the country to be better. You know, it's like, I want the U.S. to be better. I'm not just like attacking them for the sake of attacking them, you know, because I feel like that's the way sometimes, you know, especially certain people have that interpretation, right? Any criticism is somehow looked upon as like, uh, you know, anti, <laughs> anti that country. And it's probably exact contrary, you know, that I think that criticism comes from a place where you want things, you know, to improve. Um, so, yeah, with this concept of race, uh, that's really interesting what you mentioned about the no no black people allowed in the clubs. I actually I, I haven't seen that um, since we were in high not, school. Not, club, not, not clubs, small, small bars. Okay, let me be honest. It was bar. never big establishments, right? <laughs> but it yeah. was still the fact that, you know, I, I would never see something like that in America. So you have small bars where, you know, sometimes they say no no Americans and sometimes they say, say no blacks. They're usually around military bases and they're mm. usually at, in places after crime has, has come. <laughs> so, it's, you know, you can't... Um, you almost can't blame sometimes the reaction just because of, again, stereotypes that are out there. I know I've updated a couple of Japanese girls and the only image that they had of, of my culture was what they see in the movies. And so there's a lot of doing you have to do there sometimes. That's really disappointing to hear and that, that, that's still around. I mean, hopefully it'll be gone. Um, in Korea, they have something similar to no foreigners. So for me, mm. Uh, that was that's been a culture shock living here. This was like 2018, 2019 to get rejected <laughs> from an establishment, right? And, and I'm like, you know, I'm half Asian, which is minority, but I, you know, more or less look like a, you know, Nick Harris is a pretty white boy. Uh, <laughs> right? So this white boy getting rejected from an establishment, and I was just thinking, wow, like. But like, you say that I tell all my mixed race friends, being around being around the world, it's it's the inter, it's the interracial people that are getting the worst. It's almost like they've they're got competing cultures not only with them, themselves, but they've got competing cultures they have to prove themselves externally. So it's it's just a really weird thing. I I think interracial people have it really hard right now. <laughs> it's it's a great it's, point. It's really man. untalked about, man. <laughs> Definitely the whole like choosing your race and mm. you know what to do. It's. Uh, it's probably a new line, though. In a sense, it is also, you know, embodying the progress we've made, too, though. Because I was just watching television the other day on Netflix. Uh, it was some a teen show called 13 Reasons Why. And, like, half the cast is, like, half black and half white. And then, like, half Hispanic and half, like, Asian. I was wondering, nothing like what we grew up with, with, you know, Seinfeld and Friends. Like, oh, occasionally, you know, you one Asian character would show up for, like, two episodes and they would, you know, move to the next, you know, over. They <laughs> <laughs> part of the, uh, you know, cast. So, um, but I think, yeah, you, you bring up a great point. I think that itself could, could make a whole interesting podcast itself <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're part of the military um hmm. and maybe you could start by just sort of educating the general audience as well as myself in regards to what exactly does this job in all right uh so i tell people all the time if you've seen the simpsons you know exactly what i did because uh homer simpson is actually a nuclear plant operator and so when he's sitting at that panel that's uh that's what he's watching is, is the gauges for a nuclear reactor so uh, I tell people that's pretty much who I was, was Homer Simpson, <laughs> uh, of, of, a, of a submarine at least. So we went underwater. But um, 
But basically, uh, the job of a nuclear ro- uh, reactor operator is, is to just measure the parameters of a reactor to ensure that they remain and levels that keep the reactor operating in a safe manner. So you've got different parameters such as temperature, uh, pressure, just uh, different power levels, um, different loads that you're putting on the reactor through your, your steam engines and your, your turbines um, from electrical power. And there's just this big weigh and balance, balancing act that you're doing. I basically tell people, I watch, I've watched gauges. I'm not allowed to turn away from my panel. And if those gauges move, I, just, I have to figure out how to put them back where they are. Other than that, I mean, no, it's like Homer. <laughs> is that why um, I actually, I know of one other person who's done it and this person was maybe in it for two years, three years. Um, is it the, hmm. that type of job where people do it for, you know, no more than a few years and, and then move on because it's so stressful and because it's so high stakes? Uh, we, we do have a, a high attrition rate. There's probably the highest attrition rate next to, to sales, to be, to be honest. Um, there are just a lot of so, so not only is training intensive, so I started uh, training uh, in Chicago for basically in 2007. So you, I go from Chicago, I go to Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, you've got a year worth of training, which we have to go through um, your, your study in 60 to 80 hours uh, a week. Um, so it's, it's basically college, but it's college on steroids. And you're doing it with, with people in uniform yelling at you the entire time. <laughs> so I'm studying wow. 68 hours a week uh, for a year, electronic fundamentals, reactor fundamentals, heat transfer chemistry, various engineering subjects that go into reactor principles. I'm shipped off to, uh, to New York. I sit in New York for six months. It's another school that you sit in where I actually operate a prototype of a reactor. Um, so there's a, there's a prototype up there in, in Northern New York where um, you train uh, your, your last line before you get to the boat. Uh, so through these various stages, though, you've, you're, you're being tested at, at every point. And just because of the level of perfection and integrity that you expect people to have when they get to the boat, that, that testing is never, um, there's, there's, never um, there's never anything anybody that slips through. <laughs> so there's, there's a, an extremely high attrition rate. And then just because uh, people get families sometimes and they just, you know, they get things they have to go do. They, they can't really dedicate to the, to the program as much. There's just a variety of reasons why people do leave. So um, by the time you get to the boat, you've been through two years worth of training and you've lost 60 to 70% of the people you started with, to be honest. So. Wow. But what, what happens to those 70%? Are there other more remedial jobs that they can sort of float into? I don't want to call it remedial. It's not like they're lesser jobs, but uh, you are definitely a lot. You're still qualified to be a nuke, which is a high standard for itself. So you're pretty much guaranteed to go any other job that you want from there. Um, it's especially ones who actually came in and gave a valuable effort. There are some people who come in and they just quit and, you know, we have a way in the Navy of knowing the people who aren't trying and we make sure that they don't get the good deal, <laughs> I guess, if you want to say that. Um, yeah. But if you are a person that comes through and you've given it your all, there's no reason to punish you. Um, mm-hmm. So those people, you know, I know I still keep in touch a lot. There's one that um, he was in IT after he got out. He works in the cryptology world and now uh, outside of the Navy, at least. Um some some of them go on to work in auxiliary div- division to work with uh, you know basic machinery, um, and get a lot of guys to go over to be uh, missile techs and take care of the actual um, strategic assets that we launch from um, to submarines. <laughs> okay, wow. So missile tech cryptology, yeah, that's definitely not remedial by any stretch of the. <laughs> <laughs> 
Definitely <laughs> not. So, so, so be careful of the word. They go out and do great jobs. <laughs> yeah. Since that sounds pretty badass. It sounds very um, Alan Turing. And, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, I, tell, I give two people two movies to watch all the time if they really want to know what goes on. Uh, if, you want, if you want to know the, just the, uh, the sheer um, fear aspect that you can have on the submarine from just being trapped underwater, um, watch Das Boot. It's a, it's a real old, um, that's a foreign movie. I can't remember what, what I want to say it's German, but um, or French. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't remember what, what language is in, but uh, D-A-S-B-O-O-T. It's Das Boot. Watch that movie. Um, it's about a World War II submarine that and it's, you're basically watching the journey of that underwater. They're getting depth charged. You're watching them go on different missions. You're watching make different port calls. And you feel like you're part of the, just the journey of the boat. Uh, and then I tell people the most realistic submarine I've ever seen is down Periscope. <laughs> Although it's a comedy. And it's, yeah. it's, it's incredibly it's, um, accurate uh, of what submarine life is like. So. Really? <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely. Well, that's boot and the comedy movie, huh? Yeah, down to the to the fact that we're all uh, down Periscope down down to the fact that it somehow we're all um, stooges and somehow this incredible machine still works. So, <laughs> so you leave the Navy and you head over to Arizona, new life, um, similar jobs, right? In regards to sort of the tech techiness, at least from my view as a teacher. <laughs> I know it's not. I know it's not being in a submarine. I know I saw your face for a moment. You're like, what is he talking about? But it's still you know in the tech sector. I'm actually laughing because it's exactly the same thing, basically. It's the same electromechanical equipment, just different um, end product. Next, <laughs> you're on land too, right? <laughs> so exactly. you go, go from um, underwater to, to on land, and a major event happens. And, and I think it's better sort of coming from you than from me. So if, if you want to sort of share with the audience what happened to you in Arizona and how that sort of has affected your life plan as well as, you know, your life uh, during that time period? Yeah, so I'm in Arizona. Um, I moved there. I got, got out the Navy. Um, decided to start working for Intel. Um, Intel basically uh, produces microprocessors and different um, electronic processes for, uh, for computers around the world, CPUs. I'm sure many people have their products in their computers. So I started up, uh, joined the factory there. I'm a, I'm a technician, I'm, you know, gun call in life, um, working, I'm going to um, school online. Uh, for uh, trying to get my master's in nuclear engineering technology. Um, everything's pretty solid, stable, stable life. I go out to a, a bar one night. I'm out with some, uh, some friends. Um, and this again, this is where I mean, where, where things start to get palpable just because, um, you know, certain situations you can't, or I can't, I can't respond <laughs> uh, in certain ways to people because it, it rises in them a level of uh, just fear, fear and sometimes just consequences that I don't want to deal with. But um one particular night, we were at a bar. One of my friends got into um, into a, a scuffle with, with someone. Um, words were being exchanged. Normal, any other country that this would probably be, um, you know, a, a bar fight and two men buy each other beer, and it would have been it, that would have been the end of it. But this guy, I come over to stop my friend from fighting. Uh, this guy looks over and sees, you know, the group that he's with. Uh, becomes terrified after that he pulls out a weapon um and he starts shooting the group um in the middle of of, of this crowded bar so five people end up getting shot that night and i was uh one one, one of the ones included in that <laughs> unfortunately i um yeah i received the bullet in the chest a couple inches from my lung um took uh, a while to recover i was i was paralyzed on the left side for a while 
spent some time, uh, a lot of time in the hospital, a lot of time out of work, um, just uh, healing. And uh, it was a big, big, that, that moment really, really was life-altering experience that changed my life. I went from being just normal ex-sailor to going to college, having a career to, you know, now I have a uh, an inner reality to start contending with. So, and it was a big um, awakening experience for me, if you want to call it that. Incredible that, you know, just how, how quickly that happened and how you mentioned um, off air, just how innocuous the situation was. It's right? just a, a regular bar. And um, it, it, I think it connects to a lot of what uh, other stuff we've talked off air about sort of this, the cu- culture of violence, right? And again, that's a loaded word. And I'm sure there's different ways people can interpret that. But it's just crazy to think that, you know, you, you went to go have some drinks, and then you left um, with, fortunately, it didn't hit any vital organs, but you said it, it hit uh, the left shoulder or clo- close left chest, mm. and, and had these effects. And um, once these events transpired, you said your mindset shifted, you kind of went from job, finished that master's. So in what ways, once, you know, once the healing, um, at least a degree of the healing took place, you know, both mentally and physically, what was your next step? And how was that? Was that step affected by that event? Uh, well, I, I think really it, it put me on uh, a proper path of what was probably more internally um, accurate for me. I'm more of an empath and somehow I have no idea how I've made it through the engineering world as a, <laughs> as an empath. Definitely had my struggles going through that. And, you know, I, I hate quoting MBTI. I'd have my disagreements with it sometimes, but I'd, I'd probably be an, an INF, strong INFJ if I were to score myself on that. So being an empath in the engineering world, I think I uh, mask a lot of things that I'm um, going through that trauma released a lot of different traumas that were, were that were lying in beneath, beneath the surface of that. So I think it put me on a path to start helping other intuitive people, creative people with empaths who are stuck in logical industrialized society that we have now. I feel like the only creative outlets that people really do get that we get, you know, your, your, you know, your pop, your pop songs and the bar, you know, nightlife that we have the entertainment there. But when it comes to creative people in our society, it's their, their outlets are becoming really fewer in between. And I think that's why, at least here in America, we've, we're seeing a rise in a lot of, um, you know, what I guess psychologists would call cluster B type disorders. And those are creative people that they're affecting. So it revealed to me that there were a lot of, um, you know, not only did I get over the trauma of that, but dealing with that got me over there, just other repression that I, I had to deal with, with from being in the technical world as, a, as an empath. So I kind of, I really wanted to help empaths after that. I really wanted to go connect with other highly emotional and highly creative men, um, highly intelligent men who were having the same um, troubles in the technical world. I guess. And so when this all happened in um, Arizona, and was Correct. this partly why you made this transition to Austin was sort of to begin a new sort of focus on, you know, obviously your career is still quite similar but outside of your career you also have spoken um off air a bit about so i'm going to rephrase that uh in the in the introduction you mentioned about you know maybe one day having sort of like a non-profit or non-governmental organization relative to helping youth um in, in what ways uh has that taken place the last few years and you know how did you get the ball rolling how do you how do you basically find people that need help somehow i just 
attract, I think sometimes empaths tend to attract people in their life that just, they, I've always been a helper. Um, I think I used to, even in the Navy, I remember I used to get in trouble for my roommates because I'd be the person bringing homeless people down <laughs> from the street sometimes so they could sleep on my couch for a night just to have a cot and a hot meal for a night just because I felt bad passing him. You know, I was that guy that was getting in trouble for that all the time. So um, I was just always surrounded by people that, um, I, you know, I wanted to help. After that incident, started talking with people about just the knowledge I learned. And I think other people started sharing that. I, well, I started really mixing in um, my engineering knowledge with, with the world of emotions. Because, just because me having a, you know, a technical mind, at least, I wanted to know. I didn't want to just go through the therapies. I wanted to know systemically like why they worked. I wanted to know what emotions are. I wanted to know um, why these processes work. You know, not just... Not just um, not just go just go through it this would work wanted to know the the technical details i guess of it so um i really started researching on the how electricity and emotions are intimately connected i mean you know to go into, into base algebra we all had algebra class where we had the letter i the imaginary number inside mm -hmm. um inside are your math equations and that, that number is vital you know some of your equations will not work without that number we know that number isn't real we know we can't see or feel that number but we know that number is concrete and it's vital to see our number and in the electrical world that's it's also vital to your equations in the electrical world it's where you store and in, in an in a, in immense amount of energy is stored in that number and when you have electrical systems so i transferred that knowledge to just during my healing and i realized that that's where emotions were stored. You know, emotions are an actual energy. Um, not up with that. Emotions are actual. Um, they're power. They're actual energy stored in the apparatus around the body. And there's there's technical there's technical languages and equations about that. So I started going around. And I was talking to all the natural paths and Phoenix about this. Some of them went to the Southwest Institute for Naturopathic Medicines, one of the few naturopathic uh, institutes for healing. Um, and uh, in America, at least. Um, and I was talking with a lot of just, you know, the residents there and the doctors of sharing my knowledge. And just as I was going through my healing process, talking to them because I wanted to learn the processes to heal and just sharing the knowledge that I had of engineering, there was just this huge transfer of, of data between us. And that's, I think, what inspired me. That's when I knew what I wanted to do. And that's when I moved to Austin. I moved to Austin here. I started doing, I'm currently doing some, um, some research on just how electricity actually affects food. I and mean, I want to go from there, just try to start developing technologies that will help regulate emotions within the body. Um, just because I don't feel like we have, or I know we don't have any devices, any, <laughs> any, um, any devices that are, are out there to regulate people other than uh, pharmaceuticals, to be honest. So that, that's interesting that there's this big focus on food and, uh, you know, mental well-being. Um, what, what else have you um, sort of researched when it comes to what we you know, consume and how it affects our mental health? Um, well, it's, it, well, it comes to just the, uh, the life quality of food. Um, so food, um, so let's, I'll put it in the perspective from going, coming from Asia to coming from, uh, coming to America. And remember in Japan, just food, remember food tasting different in Japan. Uh, you could tell that food came straight from the farm and it came to the market there. And just, there were, there was a lot more, well, care, well, care, care doesn't matter in your food, but, um, there was, there was just a lot more um, attention to detail to make sure that food is in its most natural state. And I see this in a lot of countries, except for America. America food is tend to, to, to be treated as, a, as almost as an object, just like you would find in Walmart. As long as the shell of the food looks good, then the food itself must be good. Um, 
But traveling around again, I traveled in those two years, and I could tell the just the difference of food between um, different shops. You know, you can walk into Whole Foods, you could see, you could literally see just the quality of, of people who who um, who operate or how they or how they operate when they eat that food. And then you can walk into a lower income neighborhood where they're not so fortunate to get um, the freshest quality food, and you can see how the, the effects they have on their body. Um, so there's a different reason why people pay for fresher quality food. Um, and I wanted to figure out how to get America on ball with, <laughs> with the rest of the world when it comes to food quality. So. so that seems to be deeply entwined with the idea of, you know, inequity and the different uh, socioeconomic statuses and how that affects what one consumes hmm. is when you're doing this research on food, um, you know, even to the layperson, it's clear that, you know, Whole Foods quality of food is better than McDonald's. But is there something maybe especially insidious about American culture and food in the States? So it's not, it's not particular to, to, to the States. It's, well, one, it's, for us, it's our, it's our regulatory processes. Um, we, our food is, we have built-in structure into our bureaucracy to make sure that our food is handled a certain way. Um, it can't not be handled um, any, well, how do I put that? So our, we have certain regulatory um, processes that make sure our food are, are handled in a certain way. Um, the, so this kind of kills the food when we're talking about long distance travel. And you wouldn't see that in, um, in, in foreign countries because they, the food comes straight from the farm to the table. There's a lot of, um, you know, you travel Europe, there's a lot of places that, you know, it's still mom and pop, they're operating their own farms. Um, and they're able to sell their food without having to go through those same regulatory processes. If I were here in America and I wanted to just grow something and bring it to the market, there's different licenses I would have to get. There's people uh, I would have to prove to that my food is of a certain quality. Um, and that just pushes a lot of small growers out of the market just because they can either afford the time or the, the effort to, to go through that regulatory barrier. Um, so I, I think it pushes a lot of small, it's, you wouldn't see that and you don't see that in other countries. People are able just to grow food and provide their own populace with food without going through those hoops and hurdles. So ironically, the regulations that are meant to be there to sort of protect the well-being in regards to our food consumption are hurting us. And I, I totally concur, you know, having lived in Honduras, which is not, you know, the most um, in, in regards to regulation, you know, it's not like the various anything from the justice system to food is regulated very well. But their food is very good because, <laughs> as you said, they just you know they, they, they make their food and gets to the kitchen and then it gets into my stomach and it's a much more streamlined yeah, process. It's, yeah, it, it comes down to vibrancy, man. You can see, you can really, I call it vibrancy. You can see people when they eat vibrant food; they're more vibrant. You go to some cultures, you go to places like Okinawa where they've been eating the same way for hundreds of years, and you can see that the people live. They're not only do they have longevity, but they have a certain vibrancy just to the way they look, but in the way they act. Um, here in America, we eat, I mean, we do a wonderful job of killing everything in, in our food to make sure it doesn't get her sick, but we, we kill our food. <laughs> so when you eat that food, you're not, there's really no life processes in the food for the body to rebuild the life within itself. And if you're not rebuilding life, it's a lot of the reasons why people aren't able to regenerate their emotional state, which is exacerbating um, a lot of just the, um, mental health issues we have here in America, you're also not able to regenerate your physical state. And so that's why we see obesity going um, 
you know, and like if you go to the lower income neighborhoods in America, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing, you know, the mental disorders come out and we're seeing obesity and just the complications that come with that. Yeah, I think you've definitely targeted, you know, the root of the problem of like so many other problems, right? Of mm-hmm. poor neighborhoods, violence. But I, I, I you're actually mm-hmm. really, it's, it is sort of coming to me now that I'm starting to think about food and I'm starting to think about with very wealthy people, a lot of them now, there's sort of this trend of growing their own food. Um, I don't know if you follow like um, uh, Joe Rogan, for example. I know he grows a lot of his own food. And then he not only does that, but shoots his own elk. All right, so he knows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you kill your own food, then you know <laughs> there's no middleman. So yeah. deeply bad. And it's I so simple. It. And people would wonder why. I, I get a lot of questions sometimes on how I could go through so much of the trauma that I went through. And that's the answer that I came up with. But just the people that I've gone through healing with, it's the first thing you always do with people. Um, you know, it's, you got to get them, you got to get them good food and you got to get whatever drugs or, or addictions that they got out of them. And mm. once you clear people of those two things, 80 to 90% of people's problems go away. They have a moment where they are mostly detoxing and it's incredibly uncomfortable for them as they're dealing with just the traumas that are, are releasing out of them. But most of the times when you get people just good food, you take the drugs out of their system. People are okay most of the times. <laughs> so a lot of complications could just be cleared up just from that simple cultural issue. Do is there anything that uh, you do on a daily basis that you know helps your food consumption and that other people could sort of emulate without you know spending too much money or too much time? So me, I, I try to cook everything. Um, so if I can't, if if it if if it's not alive when I grab it out of the grocery store. Um, other than my meat, <laughs> I try not to, um, I try not to eat it anymore. Um, I have myself moved into intermittent fasting. So I try to cram all my meals uh, within eight, 12 hours, depending on how tired I am at, at my shift. And I, I, I try not to go too complex anymore. I mean, I've done a lot of experimenting with just different diets. So I try not to get too complex nowadays. Just eat a balanced diet, eat a lot of carbs. Um, for my first meal, that's just to get, you know, the sugar and the carbohydrates that I need to actually run through my day. Me being a leaner type of body, uh, I, I need those, like those carbohydrates anyway. Um, and then I usually, you know, have a work session. I'll, I'll work out. Um, then that's when I usually eat my meat and vegetables to people all the time. You know, I, the way I personally separate my food groups are just, um, are just, um, fruit, um, is for rebuilding your nerves. Uh, you know, there's a lot of anxious people out there who aren't, um, anxiety comes from, from nerves. And you know, one of the things, a lot of the, the minerals and the antioxidants you need to, to rebuild those nerves and to flush out everything to recall those nerves are in fruit. So, you, you know, fruit, vegetables are what's going to be rebuilding, um, you know, just the different blood processes and plasma processes in your body. And then meat and your, your, your you know, carbs are exactly what's, what's building the actual body. So, um, You've got to eat all three. And I tell people, the depends on what you're doing is what you should be eating. If you're going to go sit down and study, you want nerve food. And so you need to eat cut some fruit, get some bananas and some oranges before you study. You don't want to eat a big, heavy meal. But if I'm doing something more body, bodily processed, then I, you know, I go work out, then I need you know, some, some good meat, some carbs after that. <laughs> but then there are some people who live neutral lives. You're not extremely active. You're not extremely um, you know, or extremely docile and they do quite well with just vegetarian lives. They don't need, you know, they don't strain themselves. They don't too much fruit, but not working out too much. And so the vegetarian diet works for them. So but it just really depends on your body. That's why I try not to put 
collective information out there because I don't want it to get dogmatic because it truthfully depends on the person. Mm, that's a great point. That, yeah, the athlete's going to eat differently than the, than the brainiac. But then I guess they're both. <laughs> then you got to do some math. So at the end here, I like to sort of wrap things up by having the guests sort of tell us what is coming up in their lives in the next few years as well as next few decades. So, um, yeah, Brandon, if you want to take it away, tell us what is on the horizon. Definitely, man. Uh, so the project I'm working around is, uh, okay, I brought up the guarding project. I'm really interested on how electricity and magnetism affects food. So I actually, this perfect time to start a garden because of what's going on in the world. I already had a plan for it and kind of accelerated the pace of it, I guess. Uh, I went and dug out the uh, my turn garden bed. Uh, I put some magnets in there. Uh, if you magnetize food in the correct order, you can um, you can accelerate its growth. Uh, I also put um, built a structure that acts that operates like a solar cell that ejects electricity in the food. I've got to sit in my backyard. And I had my first growth season, and the the rate of crop growth was was ridiculous. I had all kind of neighbors coming over. I saw I got my tomatoes so big. Uh, corn, uh, the corn I grow usually only has, it's supposed to only have two to three ears of corn on it. All my corn, uh, you know, I'll have to provide you some pictures later, but um, they've got five and six years growing up my corn, um, healthy years at that. Um, yeah. Just the rate of growth my food had. So um, I'm trying to, the next year, come up with the projects and start teaching people how electricity um, affects their um, emotional state and how they can regenerate it through food. So I'll be looking up for uh, some hopefully some, um, some videos um, explaining uh, that project and, uh, and a book coming out here hopefully next year. Wow. That sounds like a really cool project. And yeah, yeah I love thanks, that. <laughs> that picture of this corn you yeah. speak of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was mad. I wanted to, to send it to you. I wanted to, cause yesterday was a full, I've been trying to make it a habit of playing on full moons uh, just based off the old farm on it, you know, farmer's almanac way. Um, but it was raining here down in Austin, so I couldn't go out there and plant, take pictures for you and, and get them to you for this session. But when I do plant, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you some um, an update on how that project already has already been going. Sounds good. We'll just add it in the little doobly-doo in the YouTube and uh, maybe on the website. Too. So um, it was, yeah, it was great catching up with you. So many topics. Um, first, uh, Dodd's guest of <laughs> Tokyo. <laughs> so, thank you uh, for being our first yeah. Dodd guest. You know, Tokyo family, even though you're not Tokyo, it's okay. We For us, uh, it's uh, Kanto, right? <laughs> I, I will, with, with people here the way you talk, I'm sure they'll inspire some more guests to come uh, knock at your door. <laughs> so, again, yeah, thank you for coming on. And that was uh, guest number 34, Brandon Lins, uh, graduate of Kinnick, 2004. And... Um,